Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And Dan will come and read 3, 1 to 14, and then verses 20 and 21. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as, of the, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting that lies what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's watching me. There we go. All right. Now I'm probably way too loud. Thank you for your patience. Um, five weeks ago, uh, I spoke on the first chapter of Philippians. We talked about uh, Paul's heart, the fullness of the, the follow heart after the heart of God. And Paul's heart was one, one for others, Paul's heart for the gospel, and, and Paul's heart for Christ. And then last week, of course, Paul was here, and um, I thought it was interesting that we have not communicated at all as far as what we're doing, except I told him I was probably doing the whole chapter of first uh, Philippians. He had to do chapter two, so if you remember last week. Uh, but his title of that was, was um, 
was uh, the aspect of humility, seeking after humility. I thought that was really interesting, the heart, God's heart for humility. And uh, without even knowing that, that he was going to have that, my title this morning is Paul's Heart for Christ, for Jesus, only Jesus. So there is a theme here that I think is important to realize that God is important about your heart. He desires to have your heart, his whole heart, your whole heart, and he wants it to communicate the Lord Jesus. So, go ahead and click the next slide for me. Here's a really quick, uh, oh, that is hard to see. If you have to darken up here, go ahead and do that. that that's too bright. The, um, there's, there's three, uh, three places here I want to look at. Paul's heart for people, Paul's heart for the gospel. We talked about that. Next slide. And there's the aspect of Paul's heart for Jesus, only Jesus. And it kind of delves into what we talked about really in, in chapter 1, the last section. Paul's desire to really G, to, to, uh, know, know Christ. So here we come back to... Um, an aspect of Paul starting in verse 1, and he, fi- he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you. There's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And that word rejoice, we're going to come back next week and kind of hit that a little bit more, because rejoice is another theme in Philippians. Where's Paul? He's in prison. Where's Paul? He's chained to a, a Roman soldier. And I don't imagine his prison has a TV. I don't think it probably has a nice cot. Probably a little more uncomfortable. But throughout the book, in every, all four chapters, he mentioned the aspect rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And I think that we're going to hit on that a little bit more next week. So uh, just note that as we come back to that uh, for next week. I think it keeps on flipping around on me here. Then it goes on, and there's the first thing, the warning. And this is really kind of the first warning in, in, uh, in Philippians. Beware of the dogs. Now, I know that in our culture, dogs are precious, and they're really valued, sad to say, sometimes more than your kids. But in that time, the dogs were the scavengers on the streets, and they were not valued at all. So when they were called, if they're really talking down to someone which the Jews did to the Gentiles and the Gentiles did to the Jews, they're just dogs. I mean, they're just scavengers on the streets. So it's not a, not a good thing to be called just dogs when, when uh, uh, Paul uses this word here. Look out for the dogs, the scavengers, those who would feed on you. Look out for the evildoers, another broader term, for those around you would, would do evil toward you or toward the things of God. The third one is, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, talking specifically of those who, by the law and the aspect of circumcision, thinking that and realizing that that is simply an outward sign. They do an outward sign thinking it's going to please God, when in fact, it's just simply meeting the law, and they haven't met God on the inside. He goes on and says, for we are the spiritual circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. 
we hear a lot today about we need to have self-confidence. We need to have the proper ego. I have trouble with that scripturally, having self-confidence. Because everything that I read in Scripture, the flesh, my own mind, you know, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we'll look at some other verses a bit later on. I'd rather phrase that our confidence is in Christ. He is our confidence. But those are the others. They are, their con- don't, um, we are the servant whose confidence is in Christ, not in the flesh. Though I myself, now this is interesting, Paul goes on kind of a, kind of a tirade here. He's, he just said, we are confident, don't put confidence in the flesh, but if there was reason to put confidence, I would have more reason to do that. And then he goes on to describe him, himself, his past. So this first one, go ahead and Click it there, Callie, is Paul's past, next one, pedigree. And I think for us, something to realize, okay, as we look at Paul's pedigree, what do I consider about my pedigree being? If we look at that, I have more confidence in my flesh, verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more, hey, by the law, I was circumcised the eighth day. That was according to the Jewish law. I'm of the tribe of Israel. I am God's chosen people. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was Abraham, who was the beginning of the uh, people of Israel. And Benjamin was the last son of Abraham. And because Joseph, he thought, was dead when he'd been in Egypt... They had Benjamin, and he valued Benjamin. He was, it was special to be of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's why Paul mentions that. I'm of, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. That was says he's an elite Hebrew. He is one of the, the top ones. But not only that, as to law, I'm a Pharisee. So not only is he elite, but he's one of the elite of the elite. So Paul is saying here, if there's anybody to boast, if anything to have some confidence, I'm more. I was zealous. I was passionate. His zealousy was shown to the aspect that he persecuted the church. These Christians, they, they're destroying. They don't know God at all. They don't realize at all. He persecuted the church. As to righteousness, Ah, I was blameless. That's his pedigree. That's his pedigree. Paul was considered the next generation in leadership. He was climbing the ladder of religious, social, and even political success. He was respected in his knowledge, his zeal. Paul was a man of passion and action. I wonder if he was being groomed or being maybe the high priest or something high up in the religious setting there in Jerusalem. A Bible scholar, Wiest, says this about Paul. Paul was a citizen of Tarsus, which is not in Israel. It's clear north up around the curve of the Mediterranean Sea there. He was a citizen 
of Israel, of, of, of Tarsus. At the time he lived there, only families of wealth and good reputation were allowed to retain their Tarsian citizenship. This throws a huge light upon Paul's early life. He was born in a home of wealth and culture. His family were wealthy Jews living in one of the most progressive of oriental cities. He had reared, they had reared him in the lap of luxury and sent him to the Jewish school in Jerusalem, Jewish school of theology, and sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the highest teachers and respected teachers, Jewish teachers of the day. And they had given him an excellent training in Greek culture at the University of Tarsus, which was a Greek school of learning. Paul had it all. He had everything going for him until, until that road to Damascus when he came face to face with Jesus. He was a man that everything was before him. He was the epitome of what most people would think that they would want to be. So put in your mind, who, what's your pedigree? Who do you look to, to you admire, to you respect? Who do you look to, I wish I could be like that. Well, Paul was even far above that in that culture until, until that road to Damascus where he came to face to face with Jesus. Everything changed. All the glory, all the prestige, all the fame, all the fortune, all the position and power that was in his future, he gave up for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. We also says his parents would have nothing to do with him, with a son who had, in their estimation, dishonored them by becoming one of those hated, despised Christians. Paul mentioned last week about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, 56 of them, and how when they signed their name on that bottom of that page, they were putting their life on the line. They were putting their pedigree on the line in a real sense. And he mentioned how many of them were lost their homes, lost their wealth. Several of them were tortured and killed. Several of them were uh, died bankrupt. But they signed their name on the line knowing what their future might be. When I was in high school, um, I met a man, he actually stayed in our home, his name was Lol Din. He was a Pakistani man. I think he stood probably this high, and he was a solidly built man. He was born in a, in a, really a tribe in Pakistan. His father was the chief of that tribe. And being the oldest son, he was the one that would take over the chieftain's position when he came of age. But then... Baldin came face to face with Jesus. And he had a, a change in heart, life. Now all, I don't know what, what amenities he would have had of becoming the uh, chieftain of his tribe. Uh, probably not like we think when we look at Paul. But I'm sure it was respected in that culture. But then he came to Jesus. And he began to talk about Jesus. His father said, nope. 
you're not going to take over the chiefs of the tribe. He began to talk about Jesus to his, his people in the village. Nope. They didn't want to hear anything about Jesus. He left the village, took his sandals off, shook the dust off of it, and went to the next village. Talked about Jesus. Nobody wanted to hear about it. Took his sandals off as he left, dusted his feet off of it, and left. He left what could have been probably a very prestigious position in that particular tribe. What's interesting is, I met him in probably the early 1960s, not 1860, the 1960s, <laughs> and um, he stayed in our home for a week. He was, we were, he was teach, uh, speaking at our church and several other places. We lived 22 miles from school, and so the bus stop came by our schoolhouse probably around 7.15, 7.30 in the morning. So my father was a, a dairyman, and uh, so he was usually up. Mom and dad were up at 3.30, 4 o'clock. I can still hear my dad reading Scripture out loud to Mom as she was making breakfast for the two of them. I was up in the upstairs room, but I can hear my dad's baritone voice reading Scripture. Well, that particular morning that he was dating it, I remember coming downstairs. It was probably around quarter to seven, maybe 6.30 even. And for some reason, I stumbled into the living room where Lulden was staying. And I quickly shut the door. I saw this huge man, solidly built man, on his knees at, the, at that bedside, actually at the couch. And I was kind of surprised, maybe not so much, but then I went out and I was talking to my mother, and she said, yeah, I happened to peek in about 4.30, and he was on his knees then. His knees literally were calloused, were calloused. When he would speak, he says, the Bible is like a, a giant jigsaw puzzle. All we have to do is put the puzzles together to see the picture. So when he preached, literally it was quoting passage after passage after passage after passage, and it began to, the tapestry of a beautiful picture. He had the opportunity to speak to the president of France earlier in, I think, the 1940s, and uh, preached about Jesus. Later on, he gave an address at the United Nations, and a, in which he said, here you are, as a government or an organization trying to bring peace to the world, P-E-A-C-E, -E, but all you're doing is causing pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S, because you're leaving out Jesus. He left what he could have had as far as culturally chieftain of his tribe, but he spoke to literally hundreds around the world I think Paul's life was just similar to that. He had the potential of being amazing. And he decided he met Jesus. Actually, God decided he met Jesus. Look at verse 7. All those things that I could have gained, all that I could have been, all that I could have had, he says, I counted them but loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. 
And again, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. That word count is aspect and can be translated consider. It's used in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where in chapter 6, Paul, right from that book, he says, you know, you're dead in trespasses and sin. No, that's the Ephesians. We, are, we have died with Christ and we're raised in newness of life. And consequently, we are count ourselves dead to sin. That word is reckon ourselves or consider ourselves. It is, it's, a, it's an aspect of appropriating truth of what God has done to our lives. And so it is here. Paul says, I consider those stuff, all that pedigree, as loss for the excellency of knowing Christ. Now, the NIV and the ESV use the word rubbish. I count them but rubbish. Um, verse, verse 8. Um, the King James Version is probably more accurate. Do you remember what that says? The King James says, I count them but dung, manure. I knew a friend, um, it's been several years ago, they went to Mexico, Mexico City actually, on a short-term mission trip. And uh, their ministry on that week that they were there was to minister to those who, the people, actually it was a city of people who lived out of the city dump. You know, all the trash that people set out by their homes or whatever it was, and I, I'm probably not as uh, nice as it is today up here, they would haul it to the city dump. And I guess it was literally a mountain of trash, that rubbish that people hauled out. And these people would rummage through that garbage, rummage through that trash. be like going out to the landfill. What can I find? What can I find to eat? What can I find to put in my little shack where I live? That's how they lived. That, that, that was their ministry at that time. And so that term rubbish has that connotation with me, which if it's manure, you're not going to have a city of people rummaging through manure trying to find something. And yet that's what Paul considered all his pedigree was for the worth, the, the, the worth of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ. I can't imagine that contrast. Um, he goes on, verse 9. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which from God that depends on faith. And that kind of, uh, he mentions something like that earlier where he says, you know, I put no confidence in the flesh, but I, I look to Christ. Uh, the righteousness of our own. <laughs> Sometimes I have, hey, I'm not that bad. Am I? I mean, I, I, my wife picked out what I dressed already, so I, I think it's all right. You know, I, my hair may be thin, but it, I still got some. Um, I go to church. I count that as my pedigree. Oh, I even give to the church pretty regularly. You know, we all have a pedigree that's in our minds that we feel makes us 
Mm, yeah. Maybe acceptable. But when it comes right down to it, we read in Romans in chapter 3 that that pedigree of righteousness is not a pretty sight. Our self-righteousness, all that we can muster in ourselves is described in Romans 3, where Paul again writes, not, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. Now here's a picture. Their throat is an open grave. That stinks. Their tongues deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace that they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now what's interesting the verses before that, I should say, that chapter 1, Paul declares the Gentile under sin. Chapter 2 of Romans, Jew is under sin. Chapter 3, he lumps them together, and we read in verse 9 of Romans 3, for what then? Are we Jews better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The Jews were the, considered the religious ones, the good ones. That's who we would be. We're the religious ones, the good ones. We believe the Bible, and yet even that, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. But then Paul goes on to say, my righteousness comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, not on works. And even the very same chapter in Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law, apart from doing. Although the law of the prophets hear or, and bear the witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe but there's no distinction for the all of, of sin falls short of the glory of God. But they're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul has just described his old pedigree, which had the line of success of really a marvelous life. And he rejected that when Christ Jesus met him on the road of Damascus, and everything changed. And he says, I'll, that is loss, that's rubbish. It is far more valuable to know Christ. I think that shows a little bit about his heart of knowing Christ. When I get to chapter 10, which I'm sure probably many of you, I memorized that chapter years and years ago. Um, Verse 10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, the share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I kind of look at that as a, as a parenthesis. After Paul has expressed, this is who I was, I gave it up for knowing Christ. And I think that parenthesis is, wow, 
And I think he probably said it something like this, Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the sharing in his suffering and being conformed or becoming like him in his death. I think it's kind of an expression, oh my, my goodness, all that I have in Christ far surpasses my former pedigree. I don't know that I can say that. I don't have that. We'll talk about it just a little bit later. Now, it's interesting. You look at that, those, a few words there in, in um, verse 10. That I may know him. In the Greek language, there's two words that are translated know in the English. The one word is oida. It has the idea of, of knowing something because you've read about it. Knowing something because someone's told you about it. Um, it's kind of like a head knowledge. The word used here is the word gnosko, which is experiential knowledge. It's knowledge gained because I've experienced it. And that's, the, that's what Paul is saying. I want to know Christ in my experience. I just don't want to know him back here. That Yeah, I, I know him. Yeah, I've heard about him. Yeah, I, I love him. But he wanted to, I think that, that experience has an aspect of, of walking with, talking with, communing with. Paul says, oh, that I might experience Christ in my everyday life. And the power of his resurrection. <laughs> oh, who doesn't want to see the power of of the resurrection. That, that word power there is from the Greek word that we get the word, our word dynamite from. It's dunamis. And, and dynamite can be powerful, like explosive power. It's explosive power. And Paul said, oh, I want to see the explosive power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that others see Christ. Not me, but see Christ. There's a power that overcomes resistance. So Paul said, all oh, that I might experience a walk with Christ in my daily life, all oh, that I might, the Holy Spirit might show His power. That I might share in His sufferings. Um, the, the Greek word there is koinonia, which is probably equally translated fellowship. And that word, that fellowship means a, a joint participation. I think it's interesting, that very same word, koinonia, is mentioned back in um, uh, chapter 2. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are you are all koinonia, your partakers, your partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is in prison in Rome. He writes to them in Philippians, in Philippi, I'm not sure how many miles away, that's quite a few miles away, and he says, you're participating with me 
in the gospel. You're participating with me even in my imprisonment. And I think Paul is saying, all oh, that I might know him and the power of his and I want to be in participation with Christ, even if his suffering. Maybe it's not like this one over here. I, I, how many of you are familiar with uh, Voice of Martyrs? A number of you are. We see what is happening around the world where Christians have, are really being martyred and suffer for Christ today. In fact, I read a statistic not too long ago. There's more, more Christians have died for Christ in the last 200 years in the previous history. Well, maybe even less than 100 years, whatever it was, than previous history. Well, that is the participation. Maybe we're not... Maybe I'm not in China or Russia, Ukraine, or some of these places who are really Iran, Iraq, who are very antagonistic to the gospel. But I can participate with their suffering in my prayers and by thinking about them. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here, that we, we are in joint participation in the suffering of Christ, even our fellow believers around the world. The last phrase there, being conformed, becoming like, becoming like Christ himself. Um, becoming like him in his death. That word conformed has the, um, has the root word morpha. And from that word we get the word metamorphosis. Uh, the butterfly, the ugly worm, you know, I think of the, the monarch butterflies. You've ever got out and got those worms, and they're green. They're about the size of my little finger and about that long, and they've got the little horn on the one end. They've got red and white stripes and some red dots all around them. They're not really pleasant to look at. But I remember when our kids were younger, we, um, maybe it was our grandkids even, we collected a few of those, brought them in, and put a milkweed in a cage, and they built a cocoon around that, and the process of time, out comes a beautiful monarch butterfly. That's metamorphosis. Paul uses that word in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 12. Very, very common chapter, verses for all of us. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, don't be conformed to this world. Now, that's not morphe. That's not the word that we're used looking at here. Conformed there is being pressed into the mold. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world. It's an outward force pressing us in. But, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The difference is... It's giving an outward expression to one's inner intrinsic nature. To be morphed, <laughs> metamorphosized, is to have the life of Christ within begin to blossom out in our everyday lives. So looking at chapter, or verse 10, all that I may experience, may experience a walking of life and know Christ. Oh, that I might be, the Holy Spirit might show the power, the dynamite of Christ in my life so others would see him. 
Oh, that I might be willing and eager to share with those who suffer for Christ. And even the aspect that I might become like him is death. A death to self, but alive to God. I think that gives that verse a just, I think, a really good meaning. So, Paul's past pedigree and how he handled that. So, the next few verses, verse 12 to 16, we'll look at Paul's present purpose. And she's going to get that up there, I know. She's looking at it there. Paul's present purpose or goal. And we look at the verse, uh, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, I think this is important to realize. Paul, I was a perfect Jew before coming to Christ. I mean, there was nobody better than I was. And even after coming to Christ, oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might experience him. Oh, that I might experience his power, etc. But no, I'm not perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing, and the I do really is added, one thing, forgetting what lies behind, that's your pedigree, that's maybe who I wanted to be in the world, leaving behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature thinking this way, and if anything else, be, otherwise God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, I'm not there yet. How many of you have thought, boy, Paul was an amazing man? And he was, to look at that. But he wasn't amazing in himself. He was amazing because of how he gave everything up and served Christ. He says, I haven't attained it. I'm not perfect. We learned last week... Paul's message, Jesus is the only perfect example. He is the only one. And verse 13, he emphasized that, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm sure not there yet. And I would say most of you would say, hey, I'm not there either. But, but, forgetting what lies ahead, I strained forward what lies behind, I strain for what lies ahead. I press on. The picture there that Paul is using is actually an athletic picture. When I was in high school and even afterwards, I did some running and, and I don't do much anymore. I'm just too old. My knees are too old. I'm not too old. My knees are too old. I think that's a problem now. I, I love to run. I, I always did. Now, some people think I'm crazy because I love to run, but so be it. Uh, but I remember, and probably most of you have been to either a track meet or cross-country meet, and, and what's really exciting is when you have soup, you know, two people that are really good, and they're really, they're pressing on. And maybe, maybe it's the 800. And so they've gone all the way around that, that oval track once, 400 yards, or meters, like yards back in my day. 
And then they come around that second time. This is the last lap around. And they come around the bend, and you're watching them, and they're straining. You can see that the necks tighten, and their muscles are pushing out. Their, their arms are they're pumping, pumping, pumping. Their legs are just stretching out there. And they don't dare look, but they know there's someone right there. And they're pumping, pumping. And even when they get right to the line, they're pushing out. That's the picture that Paul has of his pressing on to know Christ. I, um, I probably have to admit I do a lot more straining on my workday world than I do straining to know Christ. Maybe do a lot more straining and pressing on to, you know, um, looking good in the community than really just pressing on for Christ. Now, those things are all right, but the purpose is Christ. That's the picture. Paul is bent on pressing on to Christ. Pressing on to loving and serving and knowing and, and showing his power in his daily life. So Paul is willing to put aside his pedigree and the, his present purpose is to his goal to exhibit Christ. Third slide there, Callie. Paul's future promise, the prize. And that's mentioned in several verses here. Um, I think the overarching promise and the prize really is, you look at back at verse 7, that I may gain Christ. And yeah, I count all loss for the sake of Christ. And verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing, that experiential knowing, that experiential walking daily with Christ. Again in verse 8, he says, that I may gain Christ. So we have a promise that as we desire to be more like him as we desire him to search after him that we're going to. In fact, uh, Romans 8, 29 says he has predestined us to become, to be conformed to the image of Christ. God is in the purpose of developing the image of Christ in your life, in my life. The next phrase, uh, thing there, of course, the promise, the prize, verse 14 I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's coming back. He's going to call me home. <laughs> it's probably age. But my wife and I have talked quite a bit in the last few weeks and months, you know. <laughs> I'm ready. You know, we, we just visited some dear friends in Kansas last weekend, and, and they're really failing in health. They say, we're ready. My mom, she passed away two years ago this August, and she was ready. And as I get older, I said, Lord, look at what's going on in the world. I'm ready. Well, it's easy to say, maybe to do, but, but you know, I think Paul is saying here, I am longing for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Um, 
That, that's a little tough one for me because I'm probably a little patriotic. Well, I am probably patriotic. I don't think that's bad. Uh, I, even Paul used the political system in the sense that he was a citizen of Tarsus. He was also a citizen, because of that, a citizen of Rome. And so when he was, when he was taken, uh, arrested in Jerusalem right after his last missionary journey, uh, they went out and beat him and flogged him. I don't know why he waited, but after it was all done, he says, how dare you? I'm a Roman citizen. They were aghast. What have we done? And he says, I appeal to Rome. We go to Rome. So Paul used his earthly citizenship. And I think we as believers, you know, we are, we, we use our earthly citizenship in the way that's proper with, with, I think, consistent with Scripture. But our true citizenship, our glorious citizenship, is with Jesus. It's with Him. Verse 21. Start verse 20 again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the dunamis, by the dynamite that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Yes, there will come a day when this body, which is decaying now, I already told you my knees are bad, I can't run anymore. Um, but it's a day I'm going to have a complete body. My wife, oh, how many times she has said, oh, to have a new body. Oh, to have a new body. And we pray for that. But God has a purpose for her being where she's at right now, and God is using her where she's at right now. And I think we have to understand that. Amen. But there's one day we will have a new body. It won't be limited. I can run again. I don't know if they have hills like Iowa to run in back you know, when you get to heaven, but I can run again. That, that word there... Again, uh, who will transform our lowly body? That's, that's the same word, morphe, metamorphosis. You know, Jesus Christ lives within us now. And we want him to be reflected in our lives. But at this time, the true butterfly is going to come out. The new body is going to exemplify the beauty and the graciousness and the majesty of Christ. And that's what we have to look forward to. So we've gone from Paul's pedigree, the worldly pedigree, to Paul's present purpose and goal, which is to press on to know Christ, to strain for that aspect of knowing Christ. And the future of, yes, we have, we have a home coming to us. But what's interesting, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in. 
hey, it's not just for Paul. It's not just for the Philippians. It's for you and for me. And it's, it's for you and for me to be able to say, oh, that I might, that I might experiential knowledge and walk with him. Oh, it's for me to be, to be, you know, experience the power of the resurrection. It's for me, it's for you to, to ex- participate in the sufferings of Christ. Then he goes on, join me in imitating, or join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in, you have in us. Now, is Paul the perfect example? No. He admitted that earlier. I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. But that does not negate the responsibility that he had to live a life that he could say, follow, follow me as I follow Christ. That's scary. I, don't, I would like to really be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. But that's how we should be, brothers and sisters. He says the same thing, really. Um, um, in, in chapter 4, which we'll touch a little bit on next week. Chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. See, that's part of our pressing on. That's part of our stress straining forward. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I think that I think the song that we're going to play right now and those who are online we're just going to you'll go blank for a little bit. We do have a song we'll come back on shortly. But this song really pictures I think what Paul gave up for the excellency of Christ, Jesus only.